So it is my pleasure today to speak with the editors of the Research Handbook on Climate Change Law and Loss and Damage, Professor of Law Meinhardt Duell and Sarah Seck, Associate Professor of Law, both from the Schulich School of Law, the Marine and Environmental Law the Institute at Dalhousie University, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time and I really look forward to our conversation and the things that you'd like to share with the people who will listen to this podcast. This series is related to the Marianne Liebert's Sustainability and Climate Change Journal. And we highlight different aspects of books that we actually review in our journal. So thank you so much again for joining. Would you like to start off by just telling us a little bit about why you chose this particular topic and what your hopes are with this this book in terms of the audience and how you think it could potentially affect change? Sure, maybe I'll, I'll start. So th the basic premise behind the book is that we recognize that the issue of loss and damage is not being adequately uh, handled within the UN climate regime. So our, the basic premise behind our book is that other legal systems will be challenged to respond to, to the issue of loss and damage. And increasingly so, as it's becoming clear that we are not preventing uh, serious climate change through mitigation efforts. So we try to select some of the key legal systems that will be challenged to deal with the issue and basically posed a couple of questions. And, and one would be whether the legal system is, is ready to, to respond fairly to the issue of climate change, how it would currently deal with the issue of climate change, and then what changes would have to be made for it to fairly deal with, with claims for climate change loss and damage. I'll just build on that. We're hoping that the book is going to be useful for lawyers engaged in climate litigation or as, as uh, whether, whether on behalf of plaintiffs or, or defendants trying to understand the possibilities, and as well as policymakers, law students, and and others. One of the key different aspects of the book compared to others that consider loss and damage is that we very explicitly went beyond the UN climate regime. So we do have chapters that explicitly talk about loss and damage in the traditional climate law context. But when we look at other legal regimes, we're also looking not just at what the question of loss and damage might look like from the perspective of other aspects of public international law, but we also look at challenges arising in and, and opportunities present in domestic legal systems, as well as the complexity of uh, transnational litigation. And then as an underlying theme, which we present at the front of the book, our aim is very much to center the fact that climate change does and is causing harm to those who are vulnerable to climate harms, many of whom have been rendered vulnerable to climate change by the economic systems that have been and the colonial systems and, and histories that underlie all of the legal systems that are also at issue here. And so with that, we're trying to really center the impacts of climate change and to bring that to the fore of the conversation. Now, when we think about the law, especially on an international basis, enforcement is the first word that actually comes to my mind, how, how do you see enforcement, enforcement vehicles here and in terms of looking at who is ultimately responsible for the loss and damage being suffered by either vulnerable peoples, vulnerable populations, as well as physical land masses? 
Yeah, so the, 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 the question of enforcement will, of course, be different for each of the legal systems that we, that we, that we consider. And I have to say that our, I mean, in, in most domestic systems, there are established mechanisms for effective enforcement. There are huge challenges, and Sarah can speak to this a lot better than I can, about transnational enforcement. But our focus, and there are chapters that deal with, with those issues, but our focus is, is more on establishing the, the legal responsibility. But with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Sarah. So, so depending on, on whether one is talking about, you know, how, how might a claim look, for example, if we're thinking through international refugee law, well, there's some, some challenges. If we're, if we're using an international human rights law lens, what might it look like? The aim in part is really to frame, does the law as it is generally understood even recognize or have the potential to recognize that there is actually a legal responsibility on the part of somebody and and who might that be and and what might that look like. But more broadly, when we think of legal claims, there have to be, we have to think about who might be potential plaintiffs, who might be potential uh, defendants, uh, what might be the law that governs the dispute. And then, as you say, if you actually have a judgment where where does it get enforced? So in the transnational law context, this is a really interesting question and a really challenging one. What isn't commonly understood is that legal systems, uh, domestic legal systems, can first decide whether or not to hear a dispute and might decide another court is better placed to hear it. But even if they hear it, they might decide to apply foreign law or they could be applying international law. But even if at the end of the day they get a judgment, if the assets or if the if the assets or whatever needs to be to be addressed is not in that jurisdiction, then you get into, you know, transnational enforcement of foreign judgments and, and it's complicated. And we have chapters that, that talk about those aspects. So, so I think the simple answer would be it's not simple, but we need to talk about these things. And we've tried to make a, an, an attempt to clarify some of these issues in the book or the challenges. So you bring up. The next question, which is, this is an edited volume, so you have different authors responding to these questions, providing insights with regard to areas of their own expertise. So could you tell us a little bit about how you assembled your authors? Yeah, so the, the starting point for us was that we identified the issues that needed to be included in the book, and, and, and certainly we identified the legal systems that we felt were most likely to be challenged by the issue of loss and damage. And in some cases that was obvious because cases had already been brought in those legal systems. But in other cases, they were just you know, subject areas or, or legal systems that we knew would be challenged to deal with the issue. And, and then you know, from there, it, you know, it was pretty straightforward. It was a matter of finding globally leading experts that understood the legal system. We were much less concerned about whether they understood and had followed the climate issue, what we wanted were people that, that understood and were global leaders and leading experts in the legal systems that we identified. And then we posed the questions and we gave them the context to then consider whether the legal system is ready to deal fairly with claims for loss and damage, right? So th that was the collaborative part where we worked with each of these contributors to say, okay, you know the legal system better than we do, but here are the questions and here's how you need to think about the questions in order to 
enlighten us all about the the readiness of the, of this particular legal system to deal fairly with claims for loss and damage. And I'll just add that we start the book with three chapters, which are framing chapters in which we're really trying to center the importance of approaching loss and damage through, first of all, an equity lens, Natalie Chalafour speaks to. Secondly, situating very much the history of colonialism and, and racial capitalism, which is the lens that Carmen Gonzalez brings. And then, and third, we drew in Usha Natarajan, who's a, an expert on international law, third world approaches to international law, and also how to think about international law and its relationship with, with nature. And so those framing chapters are also important for encouraging authors in, in other sections to really center vulnerability, but also to understand vulnerability in light of colonial histories, which comes up as a theme in certain chapters much more strongly than, than in others. For example, in Kyle White's chapter, addressing Indigenous approaches to thinking about the climate loss and damage challenge. I would imagine it's also somewhat difficult for the law because of the fact that it is also an embodiment of culture and the embodiment of the culture of the conqueror more so than the, than the ones that were conquered. From that perspective, this is what we also come across uh, with regard to economics too. Since we have no specific mission statement or value statement that guides a society that automatically embeds ecocentric perspective, we actually, it seems to me, both in the law and probably in our economic systems, move very slowly in an iterative process to be better than the period before without really any kind of aim as to where we're headed. So this is a question I'm gonna ask you, and I don't, it might be a maybe unfair question to ask you too. Is there a way that someone will take responsibility through the law to actually create a focus of what society should be, as opposed to an iterative response of removing what it shouldn't, if that, if that makes sense? Legal systems are all, are all very different, but as in the Canadian common law legal system, and the common law system is very common in the, the common law world, it builds, the idea is that law builds on precedent, but also the precedent needs to evolve in light of changing circumstances and, and contexts, and also changing understandings of, you know, the, the history. And, and so even if we just look at the evolution of Canadian law, Canadian Aboriginal law, which would be how the rights of Indigenous peoples within the Canadian context are being understood. It, you know, it isn't, even though we have this idea of, you know, judicial precedent and we have the same court structure as we would have had, you know, a hundred years ago, the way in which doctrines are interpreted and understood and informed by developments in international law and, and current and, and policy developments like, you know, about reconciliation suggests that law is not something that stand, that needs to stand still. Now, of course, we can point to lots of examples where law moves backwards, unfortunately, recently. Um, but in theory and in practice, law has this potential to evolve to respond to circumstances and changing understandings. And I think that's really that's really fundamental, but challenging, especially when you know challenging and potentially limited. But but there's potential. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I I think many of us that are engaged in substantive issues, you know, feel that law is is changing too slowly, and as Sarah said, sometimes it moves backwards. But it there are times and there are opportunities for law to bring about significant change fairly quickly. And, you know, at times that is 
in the hands of judges through through common law or through you know progressive interpretation of uh, of constitutional provisions uh, but sometimes it's also the the loss of a court case that then motivates the legislature to take a fresh look at an issue right so and, and you know and it's difficult to predict where and and whether this will happen in the context of loss and damage but one of the reasons for framing the questions to our contributors the way we did was to get them to think beyond the current state of the legal system to actually ask the question how would the legal system have to change to deal fairly with the issue of climate change and uh, loss and damage? And, and the framing chapters that Sarah has referred to were an important part of that message to our contributors. Well, we've spoken about the book, but we haven't really allowed you to talk about loss and damage specifically, because you also have a desire just to elevate this particular issue in the hope that just in the elevation of the issue that that can actually do some positive in terms of mitigating some of the harm to, to to very vulnerable populations and countries. So could you perhaps we provide a little bit more definition on, on loss and damage itself? Yeah, so the, the starting point for, for us is that when we think about loss and damage, we think about it in relation to mitigation and adaptation in the context of climate change. And, you know, and of course, the three are interrelated. And the line in particular between adaptation and loss and damage is, is blurry, and we explore that in, in our introductory chapter. But ultimately, a simplistic view of the, of the issues is that mitigation uh, is about reducing greenhouse gas emissions and protecting natural sinks, so natural systems to keep our greenhouse gas emissions and our climate system in balance. And then adaptation is about human intervention uh, to deal with the changes that are not prevented through mitigation efforts. And loss and damage is what is are the impacts and the loss of resilience and, and, and vulnerability that remains after you whatever level of effort you've made on mitigation and adaptation. So that's a kind of a, a high-level overview of how we identify loss and damage. And then in terms of what we're hoping to do by sort of elevating or centering loss and damage in the conversation, I think the motivation is, is very much that a sense that the international climate regime has not centered loss and damage. And this leads to my, my way of phrasing it is we are having the wrong conversations too often about the climate problem because we're not centering the implications of climate change, the real harms that climate change actually actually causes. Um, and we're not centering vulnerable communities, we're not centering vulnerable ecosystems. And this, again, leads us to the wrong kind of solutions because we're not having the right conversation about what the problem is. So from a legal perspective, an important piece of having a conversation about legal responsibility and liability for loss and damage is it provides an opportunity to put a, a real cost on loss and damage, which then in sort of economic terms would require those engaged in activities to internalize what has been an externality that has, that has just simply gone unaccounted for in all, all of our dominant systems. And until we do that, we will not fully uh, address the climate change problem because policymakers and actors just don't see it. They don't need to see it because there's no 
liability or responsibility for the harms that are being experienced. On some level, the normalization of the vulnerabilities of the same groups of people generation after generation, and I'm sure has also transcended the way that the law interprets vulnerability too. The challenge is very great because our lack of compassion today towards the environment and other people is something that we've just grown up with unquestioning as to where the original seed or, or the root, which would be more than likely what we've already discussed, exploitation, basically created an objective perception of, of that, right? So I guess I'll lead with that and end with that and ask you, you know, how much of the law is basically about people at the end of the day, and it does embed the culture and the norms and the, and the values of a particular society. How much of, of this is also what's uh, challenging about you're trying to accomplish? I'll maybe respond to that first. So some, some of the book does touch on the idea of transnational litigation. And a lot of my early work focused on this in the mining context, in human rights and environmental harms, the problems of companies based in rich countries, engaging in activities in other countries which have lower environmental and standards and engaging in you know, human rights exploitation. Over the years, what's become really interesting is that now, whereas previously it was not, now it is possible for those kinds of cases to be brought in the courts of rich countries. It's still nascent, but it's coming. But what that does in part, if you can have litigation taking place in rich countries with regard to activities that people in rich countries are contributing to whether or not they know it, if the cases can be held in rich countries, then the media pays attention to them more because they're being held in the courts of rich countries. And so it can change. While I have many critiques and concerns about transnational litigation, one of the things it could do is to draw attention to the way in which those in rich countries and, and particularly the affluent are contributing to harms in other contexts and need to need to know that that's that's happening. So I, I think there I think that my comment would be that I think there's potential, again, for better understandings as issues are raised in courts. And it can also involve, you know, litigation within countries over climate issues and, and loss and damage. When, when things are in courts, there's a greater chance of attention being drawn to the issue. And that can, we hope, change conversations. Yeah, and I'll just add to that, that, you know, just a couple of examples of cases, I think, demonstrate the potential, right? So if you, if you look at a case like your Denda, for example, I think before that decision was rendered by the district court and then ultimately upheld by the Supreme Court of the Netherlands, in many jurisdictions, you would not have even considered pursuing a case like this. But in that case itself has resulted in numerous cases in, in a wide range of countries that have very different legal systems pursuing similar types of cases. And I think the fact that the Supreme Court of the Netherlands upheld the, the original decision in that case has changed the way judges think about this issue in other countries. And again, the legal issues are often different, but the mindset has been one that is much more supportive of these kinds of claims. And I, you know, and I think the Royal Dutch Shell case has similar potential, right? And so those are cases that get, I think give you a sense of the global impact in, in terms of changing attitudes towards climate litigation 
that can take place even when the, the legal, the strict, you know, concrete legal issues are very different uh, from one country to another. I know we're talking about an environmental issue, but I'm going to use an environmental analogy. It's almost as though you're chopping down a tree. Nobody knows which particular strike from which direction is actually going to cause that tree to fall, but we all are involved in this fight and the urgency is obvious to many of us. So with that, I'm going to thank you very, very much for your time today, Sarah and Meinhard. And I look forward to many, many people reading the book and learning from this. It's a very important issue. And it does add to our, our knowledge base, our bounded rationality that will hopefully make us better, better global citizens. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you.